Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We've got a whiz-bang show for you this week, a spotlight on two of the most interesting exhibitions in all America. But before we get there, we're about 50 completed surveys away from being done with the Man Podcast's 2017 annual survey. We need your help. The survey will provide us with demographic information that we can share with advertisers, information that helps keep the show free. And about half of the survey is our requests for your input on how to make the program better, to see if we should make changes in the show itself or in how we deliver it, and so on. really won't take more than five minutes. I completed it in under three. So please visit questionpro.manpodcast.com to fill it out. Thanks. This week. Few of the Getty-funded Pacific Standard Time LALA shows have been more eagerly anticipated than Radical Women Latin American Art 1960-1985 at the Hammer Museum. The show is the first survey of art made by women in Latin America and U.S.-born Chicanas and Latinas during the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. It includes about 116 artists from 15 countries, including Ligia Pape, Zilia Sanchez, and Ana Mendieta. It will be at the Hammer through the end of the year. Don't miss the show's thorough catalog, sure to be a key source for years to come, which was published by Delmonico Prestel. Amazon has it for $43, roughly a 30% discount. The show was co-curated by Andrea Giunta and this week's lead guest, Cecilia Fajardo-Hill. Before working on this exhibition, Fajardo-Hill was the chief curator at the Museum of Latin American Art in Long Beach, and before that, was the chief curator of the Cisneros Fontanals Art Foundation and the Ella Fontanals Cisneros Collection. Special thanks this week to Nancy Lee at The Hammer, who went above and beyond with providing images of works discussed on this week's show. That's a bit of a challenge for many of the PST shows, Big thanks to the communications people, including Nancy, who are helping us out. On the second segment, MFA Boston curator Frederick Ilchman discusses Casanova, The Seduction of Europe. The show is at the Kimball Art Museum through December 31st. But first, Cecilia Fajardo-Hill, after the break. Experience Tom Sachs, Tea Ceremony a new perspective on the traditional ceremony combining the artist's longtime interests, branding, Americana, space travel, and everyday manufactured materials. On view now at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through January 7th. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Support comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Blue Black, curated by influential American artist Glenn Ligon. Inspired by his experience of the Pulitzer's monumental Ellsworth Kelly wall sculpture, Blue Black, Ligon enlists the colors blue and black to pose timely and nuanced questions, touching upon notions of language, identity, and perception. The exhibition brings together a diverse selection of more than 50 works, ranging from abstraction to portraiture, from Norman Lewis to Andy Warhol, and including well-known works by Ligon. Blue Black is on view now through October 7th. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Experience the high life of 18th century Europe through the eyes of its greatest lover, Giacomo Casanova. Luxury, adventure, intrigue, and seduction. With more than 200 works including paintings, sculpture, and decorative arts, in a major exhibition bringing his sensational world to life, Casanova, The Seduction of Europe, through December 31st at the Kimball Art Museum. Plan your visit at kimballart.org. And we're back. Cecilia Fajardo-Hill, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. 
This this show looks at the art women from 14 Central and South American countries and the United States too have made. Is there a a common experience or a number of common experiences specific to and really across Central and South America that make such a regional focus possible, if not imperative? Yeah, and we, we shouldn't forget that also the States is here with Latina and Chicana artists. I mean, we have like a general theme in the exhibition, which is this idea of the political body, sort of a contestation in our place from which you actually enunciate your work and your position in life. And I think this across between 1960 and 85, there is lots of shared sensibilities and points of contact. Even though much of South America and Central America and Mexico were actually immersed in really kind of difficult political situations. Many countries in South America had dictatorship. There were civil wars in Guatemala and Central America. So a lot of the themes in the exhibition or works in the exhibition refer to this kind of type of oppression and repression that there was ongoing at the time. And if for people always, you know, people ask, you know, why then the states in the states, there wasn't, there wasn't such a thing as a dictatorship. But if you look at the history of Latina and Chicana people, they've had to fight for a lot. And this country, and we can see it even still today, has been racist and and belligerent with these people. And so, for example, in the exhibition, there is a work by Isabel Castro, excuse me. And Isabel Castro uh, has a series called Women on the Fire, which was a program of forced and non-consensical sterilization of Chicana and Latina women to control the growth of Latino population. I would consider this to be something quite substantial in terms of assaulting a human right, equivalent to what it would mean for a person to be in a dictatorship, being oppressed for the political views. And also throughout the world, this idea of experimenting both conceptually and experimentally with, with art itself it happened everywhere in the world, and this is not is not is not less in all of the region. So, I think there is common commonalities in terms of the context of production, themes, and also the way that there was an experimental approach to art. So, as we address this show, we should think at least as much about a regional, multinational art history as we do individual national art history? Completely. I mean, the show has really kind of two aspects to it. One, the exhibition is divided by themes because it's very difficult to do a good show that is divided by strict chronological order and by country. This is a kind of a nationalist approach, which unless you were doing some really kind of very structured historical show about a particular country will make sense, but it doesn't work very much as a show. Nevertheless, in the exhibition, there is a timeline outside one of the two areas of the exhibition, which has political, social, and women's rights dates, and so that when you're looking at a work, you may be able to go back and outside and understand what was the context of production. The catalog, which is an important component of this project, is actually organized by country. It does have some introductory chapters, general chapters about art history and the body, but the main thing is that each country has a kind of description and bibliographical references so that you can actually understand each country specifically in the context and, and the particular circumstances of production of each artist. So there is these two, two sides to the project. And I think it makes sense to somehow use different forms, 
when you talk about curating, when you're talking about creating a book, about academia and about display. So you can actually combine them. You know, when you come into the show, you can actually see that it's a research show because of the artists that are there that, you know, many people don't know of them and everything. But I guess with the curatorial structure, you may have a more open-ended structure and it could be something different too. Whereas for the historical aspect to it, for the actual context of production by country, then that is a very specific and very serious uh, type of structure that you need to kind of create or somehow reflect in the project. You mentioned that the show is installed thematically at the Hammer. There are nine themes. We will go through some of them in a minute. But before we do, about 70% of our audience is in the United States, maybe, maybe a little higher depending on the week. And I think our audience probably has a pretty good understanding of feminism in the United States and feminist art history in the United States, especially given that museums and scholars have done a lot of work, a lot of really good work in that area in the last decade. So I don't mean to put Latin America and Latin American artists in the context of the United States as a default position, but in, in terms of the issues and political challenges that women in Latin America address in their work, what are they dealing with, addressing, and thinking about that are different than what our audience is likely to know that feminists and feminist-informed artists in the United States were dealing with? Yeah, that's an important question. I mean, if, if you see that the title of our exhibition is called Radical Women, usually when you do exhibitions, large exhibitions such as this about women, especially during this period of time, usually they're called feminists. And the problem is in Latin America, it's not possible to do that if you want to be respectful of artists. Andrea and myself, Andrea Junta is the co-curator of the show with me, we consider to be this a feminist project. It's a, it's a project of recovery, of, of creating visibility of a whole chapter of our history that has been completely ignored, partly because the system is incredibly patriarchal. But at the same time, in Latin, most of Latin America, because there were so many political problems that were, were enormous, most artists of this period were very involved in activists from the left, and the left had no patience with feminism. They considered to be the kind of the greater problems of society as the main problem and the problem of women, something that will be solved once you solve the big problems of society. So women's issue was secondary to this. And then also it was seen as an ideologically imperialistic and bourgeois form of, of thought. So, you know, so most of the artists in the exhibition in Latin America would not call themselves feminists. The exception, truly the exception, is Mexico that had an artistic feminist movement. And that is one of the themes in the exhibition. It's called Feminisms, which addresses specifically those artists that call themselves such. There's also Lea Lublin from Argentina. Generally speaking, the exhibition completely defies any patriarchal ideas of art and womanhood, defies stereotypes of beauty and what it means to be feminine, sexuality, and so forth. So by all means, in general terms, we could say that much of the work in the show is feminist. But I don't think it's possible to identify it and simply kind of classify it so easily as feminist simply because of that. I think one has to be historically more accurate and more precise and respectful about this artist decision. Even, for example, Chicana artists, because in the States and the ones that immigrated 
to the United States because of political problem, they had to exile themselves. They were exposed to feminists and they opened, uh, and so their position was more open-ended to it. But there was also the situation where white feminism, dark feminism or black feminism was actually, didn't see completely eye to eye. And so in many cases, you know, women of color felt excluded and not completely understood within the, the issues that white feminism was raised. So these are actually really complex. I, I think this idea of a, a single idea of a feminist is not truly applicable here. So beginning to pivot toward the work, a number of times in the catalog, you note that the Latin American art establishment, for lack of a better phrase, discounted artists who were women because they made what you call kitsch. And you describe kitsch in this context as art that addresses issues such as domesticity, sexuality, and, and the social exclusion of women. Could you point to a specific work or two or three that you remember hearing people trying to discount or exclude from the canon because they called it kitsch? Oh, completely. I mean, generally speaking, I think, why are these women, why have these women been excluded for so long? One of the ideas of the exhibition is to actually try to understand how during this period of time, this group of women, this large group of women, contributed to how we understand contemporary art to be today. What kind of themes, what type of conceptualism, what type of political attitude and form of experimentality. Why were not the, you know, were they not considered? You know, whenever a woman talks about specific issues related to their body and their sexuality, self-representation, they're called narcissistic. This is not the case about men. And I think women have had the need to talk about more about these issues because it has been it's been so difficult to actually throughout history, you know, women have been represented from the outside as object of desire, have been objectified. So women have had to kind of insist on this. And this has been considered a narcissistic attempt. On the other hand, there is an artist in the show, Maria Velia Marmolejo from Colombia, that she says that when she first had art at school, that they were given the opportunity as women to do embroidery and knitting, something like completely, you know, there was a classi historical classification of what you were able to do. And the reality, so when, you know, if we look at the history of 20th century, how we started to use objects and the ready-made and so forth and bad taste, in men has been always seen as something wonderful and disruptive and original. And in women has been seen as something more of a like a lack of imagination. There is a particular piece in the exhibition by a Mexican artist called Marta Palau. It's a very large sculpture, and I like to call it, it's called Lerda. I like to call it like a rebellious piece because it's a work that is very large. It's all kind of is woven with kind of an organic material. And it kind of refers back to the female body in a very kind of powerful way. It's very large, but you can't really hang it in a specific way. It kind of hangs its space in a very strange organic way. It kind of disrupts space and, and a sense of a sense of the body and how you relate to this form, which is kind of refers back well, primarily to the idea of the vagina, but it's done in a very elegant, but at the same time, completely disobedient way. So she's using every single element that may be condemned as kitsch or as bad art. You know, is a, is a woven thing, is uses poor materials, refers back to the female body, and nevertheless is completely powerful and strange and strong and uncondemnable. 
we have several pieces in the exhibition, a couple of pieces that deal with menstrual blood. You know, menstrual blood, possibly of all the bodily fluids, have been the most taboo. So if a woman decides to do a still life, Sophie Rivera, a Puerto Rican artist, is a majestic photograph, and it's just a tampax inside, a leaking tampax. You know, when you see it from far, it looks like it's beautiful, this kind of hues of reds and pinks, and then when you come close, it's, wow, is this kind of, you're confronted with this. Or, you know, there's another one which is a still life made with excrement. And, you know, there is, it's, it's, it's your body. So, you know, these things are not very palatable. Even though we like to think that we don't, don't care for beautiful things, we do. And if you expose something like this, which is so in your face, so brave, it's difficult for people to accept it. There is a piece by Johanna Haman, a Peruvian artist, that makes these three bellies. You know, during the time of the dictatorship in Peru and in all these countries, pregnant women were even, you know, they had cesarean sections with no anesthesia, and then they would kill the baby. There was no respect for human life. So these bellies, you know, think of the idea of the Virgin and Mary, you know, the image of the sanctity of pregnant women, the birth of life, and so forth devoid of any bodily relations. And then you have these three bellies which are hanging from meat hooks. They're broken. They're completely in crisis. They're just shells or something completely disastrous. So I think, you know, these are not, so these are difficult subjects and they're done in a very powerful way. And I think these themes were difficult to be appreciated for what they were. So there is lots of examples in the exhibition. The feminist art is still today in Mexico. I mean, Monica Meyer has recently had a retrospective. She called it a retrocollective at Moac. But for all these years, you know, the guerrilla girls went to Mexico to see what these women doing. It was so amazing. The guerrilla girls are a MoMA, and these women are still relatively unknown and not accepted as important artists because, you know, all the themes were, you know, there's a piece by Ana Victoria Jimenez. We only have four series, there are ten in total, of all the domestic chores. The indexical recordings of cleaning a toilet bowl by an old lady, you know, cutting nopales and making breakfast, or folding clothes and washing clothes. These things, people don't want to see them. They're the daily grind of life. And they're put out into the world as interesting and kind of images and remind reminders of who we are and what, you know, all the different layers of, of reality. There is images of mates by Sandra Eleta. They're defiant images, very human, very relatable, as opposed to kind of stereotypical ethnographic representations of these other images. So there's a lot of these works that, you know, I see them today and I feel, you know, that it's, it's important to see these images that talk about something which is fundamental, but we do not want to see, and they were doing it, and people were not interested in them because they're related to the aspects of society that are somehow buried as unimportant. To fill in a couple things you mentioned, we'll try to have images of all of these works on, on manpodcast.com. We'll do the best we can. You mentioned the Joanna Haman work featuring three bellies. The work is titled Bellies. The, the bellies are in plaster, a, a domestic material. As we both mentioned before, the catalog is organized by region or country. The exhibition is organized by theme. For the sake of our conversation, we're, we're going to go with what the exhibition does. You mentioned there that there are nine themes, uh, and I want to try to touch on as many of them as we can, given the clock. The, the themes are the self-portrait, body landscape, 
performing the body, mapping the body, resistance and fear, the power of words, feminisms, social places, and the erotic. Let's start with the power of words, which is uh, the section of the show with work that addresses, that most addresses, most specifically addresses Latin American dictatorships and their repressive tactics. Did women address the various Latin American dictatorial regimes in ways similar to or different from the way men did? I think there are many points of contact. I think I think the use of text as a way to subvert kind of state narratives was something that was used both by men and women. But in this section, there is different things that happens. You know, it's not only about the dictatorship, but there is also different kinds of things like the poetics of language. Or, for example, there is an image by Mario Rensas that we used quite a lot leading to the exhibition. It's called Limitada, Limited. On her, on her forehead, there is a word limited. And then she stares at you. So a lot of the works in the exhibition create a context in which you understand that this woman is oppressed, is pigeonholed in a particular position, and there is a defiance to that. So in this case, this limited refers to her as a female and also refers to her as herself as a person within a particular oppressive context that is not only is poli- both political and gender-based. And at the same time, the same artist has a piece called Pensar es un hecho revolucionario, to think is a revolutionary act. And it's a, it's a piece that could be understood in many different ways. But, you know, to think in time of dictatorship truly is something revolutionary. But even to think today, to truly think by yourself uh, with kind of freedom of thought, political thought, it is a revolutionary fact. So I think certain subtleties that is, belongs to this section, I think, is very specific, I think, to artists like Mario Rensas that we're mentioning, Olenora de Barros, who... He's an artist that was always worked a lot with both poetry and performance, and she had been intent into thinking about the, what what it means to actually, you know, the actual creative act of writing. And then these images came to her that she needed to fertilize the typewriter machine with her tongue, and basically it's a love making act where her tongue is is kind of literally kind of fertilizing and inserting herself into the key, licking the keys and so forth. And also, I spoke to the artist about it, and she was talking about this idea of erasing this idea of gender, female and male, and kind of merging the two of them as a creative act. So I feel that this idea of words, it really goes beyond this simple idea of, of talking about text. There is even a piece that we consider to be basically inserted into this work by Margarita Pax. It's called Silence, Silencio, and it's just a plexiglass box is ground zero, is oppression, silence, nothingness in the time of dictatorship. So is the recusal of language, of the possibility of possibilities. Or Cecilia Vicuña, that was exiled in Colombia, and Grupo Cada, which was a political group in Chile, asked her to produce a work to be published and exhibited. And in Colombia, there had been an event where a company had put paint, chemical paint into milk to make it more abundant, and then it had poisoned hundreds of children. Thousands of children apparently had died. So it's a simple gesture, but this comes, so there is three, four moments in this poem where she spills the milk, and there is a poem associated to it. And because it's a poet, everything comes attached to this idea of language. 
or the performance we did during the opening of the show by Regina Silveira, where you have the word arte in Portuguese or Spanish is arte, art, on a plate, referring back to this idea of domesticity and women and so forth in the kitchen. And then there is a second image where she's actually consuming the word art. And it doesn't only refer back to this idea of, you know, literally transgressing and completely consuming whatever she thinks may be the word art, but also referring back to the idea, the idea of anthropophagia, which historically speaking was important in the history of Brazil, not only because there was a cannibalistic act to the first colonizers, Portuguese colonizer, but also in the early 20th century, Maria Andrade created this moment where you would absorb anything that you wanted and create something new. So I think there is so many different ways in which language is used. There is a performance by Teresa, by Janet Toro, where she, in the middle of dictatorship, had a sign that said, why do you laugh? And another one, why are you sad? And in the end, the police came and people would just gather around them. You know, it's a difficult question. It's a controversial question to ask in the middle of a dictatorship. Or Gloria Gomez, Gloria Gomez Sanchez has a piece was the last work she ever produced, and she used to be a pop artist. She went to Ground Zero, says, you know, the work in this exhibition is in your head. Make your, of your life your art. So this is just to give you a sense of what really includes, you know, this section does refer to violence, but also refers to other possibilities of language. So in the social places section of the show, you note that because women's bodies and rights were inevitably politicized through marginalization and disenfranchisement and so on, that often women's bodies are key components in the work they're making in whatever medium. One of the things that I noticed as I, as I read the catalog is that as in America in the 1960s, in 1970s, Artists who had typically been left outside of dominant art narratives avoided using dominant art media, such as, as painting. Are there a couple of works in, in social places that, that demonstrate how women were really working to use new media to insert their ideas, new ideas into the dominant society and the dominant art scenes of their oh, time. Oh, completely. You know, if you were to do a breakdown of the works by medium in the show, photography is 28% and video is 21%. Meaning that because these are mediums that were relatively new, at least in the way, especially video, they didn't have the canonical history of exclusion and also the type of art that women had been not only excluded, but also when not interested in producing. And there was a possibility of experimenting and representing, which was completely different and constructing a reality. And also because it is, you know, the body was so central to this period, you know, you could do photo performances and you could do a lot of things. I was just thinking, for example, even of an artist that is a photographer through and through, Claudia Anduja, who was originally Swiss and moved to Brazil, escaping the Second World War. You know, members of her family died in the Holocaust. And then she was actually seeking for a form of social structure that she believed that could be kind of something for the future or something real. And she found the Yanomami Indians in the jungle were actually that ideal social type of community. And she became very friendly with them. There was a lot of issues with malaria. 
and several different diseases. So she managed to organize a campaign for vaccination of the Yanomamis. And what happened was that because these people don't reveal their names, they had to put numbers. And then Claudia, in order to kind of make sure that each one had a, you know, it was clear that they had been vaccinated, she had to put a number on their chest and then take a photograph. And there's a very powerful correlation between the marking of a body of a Jew that is condemned to the gas chamber and the marking of a body of a marginal person, like an indigenous person, but in order to actually help this person. There is a both a marginalization and a situation which appears to be similar, but at the same time is completely different, and she feels kind of in between this. So I think the photography here could be seen as ethnographic images. They're not in the way they're framed. They're incredibly direct and powerful, and, you know, you don't have the whole body, then he has his number, and then the way she puts them together, she creates kind of groupings of images, and this grouping of images creates kind of a sense of this kind of whole, that is incredibly complex and completely defies the idea of conventional photography. Also in this section, there is a lot of videos. For example, there is one by Yamela El-Tit where she decides to ask an indigent to kiss her. It's a kind of a social experiment. And of course, they go, they walk, and then they make a deal about how they're going to kiss. And then when the indigent kisses her, kind of opens his mouth and sticks his tongue in her mouth and it creates kind of a moment of violence and tension. And it's a very, very short, powerful video. And it really, truly shows, I mean, this is something you could never do unless you have a camera and you kind of go into the streets and so forth. And it kind of evidences incredible difficulty in all these kind of different different social situation and the kind of bridging between these different parts of society. So I think, you know, this section has at least one to six videos, and then it has many photographs, has a large postcard installation by Graciela Gutierrez Marx, who, you know, decided to create a kind of a great party in honor of her mother's birthday and sent postcards throughout the world, and people came and to her friends, and then created this kind of collective body of postcards, this kind of communitarian experience that becomes this huge kind of curtains of or, you know, Wash and Wear by Beatriz Gonzalez, which is the Venus de Botticelli, and then the Venus of Botticelli, and then is painted, it's very large, large like a woman's size, but it's painted on the cheapest possible towel bought in the market. Again, to find this idea of canonical idea of beauty, the idea of the sanctity of, of a masterpiece and so forth. So I think they use... Uh, many different ways to actually defy canonical. Even when they use painting like Marcia Schwartz from Argentina, she does Las Vecinas, the two women. They are kind of really the archetypal idea of, for many people, will be a nightmare. You know, they're not beautiful, they're not young, they're not rich, they're not special in any way, but they are magnificent in the size, and she makes an effort to put the, to make it, you know, it has a, a real cage for a bird that she puts a cage inside, which is a, a cage she constructs and it has a, a curtain and so forth. So, you know, it becomes like a large installation about something that we would normally would not have in art as, as a great art piece. So even when they use traditional media, it ends up by becoming something <laughs> kind of controversial, as it were. Another theme in the show is the erotic. There, there are a couple of works that are in this section of the show that I particularly wanted to, to bring up. One is a 1975 work by Ligia Pape that I think fits some of what you were just describing in terms of the opportunities that video 
offers. That work is titled Eat Me. Could you could you talk about that work for a moment? Uh, the way that the exhibition is museographed, this mouth is gigantic. You can actually see a way back when you still are in power of word and watching feminist videos. And it's incredibly essential. It's huge. It's, it's totally provocative. And the main lips that appear again and again are the lips of a, of a man. But they very full, very, very essential, but they have a moustache that surrounds them. So it's a masculine, feminine. It ends up by being this kind of almost kind of androgynal, androgynous figure that plays with the tongue, plays with things inside their mouth, and then it's almost kind of explicitly kind of erotic and sexual towards the end with the mouth of a woman. And I, I feel that there is something incredibly playful and out in your face, in kind of completely enlarging this erogenous part of your of someone's face to become an orifice for any part of the body, as it were. And to make it so totally and completely <laughs> sensual from every point of view and playful. And I think this is, you know, the erotic is the last section of the exhibition. And for us, you know, to have that piece as you enter the section is, is powerful and is important. It's, you know, after you go through this section of social places, which is very strong and repression and fear, which is so full of violence and death and, and pain, and you're in the end arrive to this kind of last moment, which is very open-ended and very playful and very, and in a way kind of, kind of a little bit confrontative because when you're confronted with this mouth, this mouth is really kind of calling you. And I think it's also a very Brazilian thing. I think in Brazil there is a particularly open approach to sensuality, which is um, more natural. And so that piece is special. I mean, in that section, we also have a video by Ligia Clark where she does like a therapy on a gentleman and, and she uses all these different kind of little sculptures that she used to create and is a way kind of, of awakening and passive repress of the body and she touches the body of this man that is it's not a sexual situation but is incredibly intimate and sensual and almost unthinkable in the way this woman kind of treats deals with this with this with this body of this man who is completely abandoned to this kind of therapy. Also, you know, there is a piece by Felisa Burstein, which is a metal bed with a kind of a metal structure, which is covered by a very lush red silk. And when uh, she presented in the 1970s in Bogota, which is a very conservative society, especially then, uh, all these beds, you know, they, they were moving and fluctuating, kind of suggesting bodies making love. And it was a huge scandal, even though it's just suggested. It's just there to remind you about the importance of sensuality and the body in this context. And I think women in this show, you know, in this period were particularly brave and imaginative in dealing with this theme and talking about their own sexuality, their own desires, their own bodies, as opposed to simply being the object of someone else's desire is like a, an active desiring body. And it's kind of an infinite thing. And, you know, it's not a very large section, but it's enough for people to decide how they want to feel in relation to this and where you stand in front of them. I mean, the whole show, the way it has been structured and curated like a large landscape of intersecting ideas and works is to involve the body. From the moments where you deal with violence, self-representation, the body landscape, or here at the end when you finish the show, 
there's a positive moment where you know there is a gesture of affirmative action of the body as a body that can feel and have pleasure speaking of which you 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 mentioned that 49 percent of the show is photography and video there is some painting but often when there's painting the artist finds a way to undermine or 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 tweak or adapt the medium in in new ways and a great example that that I, i think fits what we're talking about is and it's also in this section of the show, the erotic, is Zilia Sanchez's Lunar 5, Moon 5, from 1973. How does she pervert, if you will, both the medium and its standards? Yeah, I mean, she's a very interesting example because even though this is the title of the show, it really belongs to a very large series she did over the year called Erotic Topologies. So these are paintings that function not only as painting but as sculpture. They have an incredible amount of volume, and so they're not. So they are painting. They are abstract to a certain extent, but at the same time, they're this kind of majestic, sculptoric object that kind of come out of the wall, and they're very, very bodily. And many of them refer back to the idea of a breast. In this case, you know, they refer back to the idea of a vulva, or the you know, pleats of the body, parts of the body. They're incredibly feminine. But at the same time, for example, the piece in the show is all in really cool colors, white and light blue. So it's a subtle exercise, but at the same time, because it's very large, it kind of defies the idea of sculpture, the idea of painting, the idea of abstraction. So it does a lot of things in abstraction. It's supposed to be a realm, especially when she started doing this series, which is supposed to be devoid of this kind of content and references either to the body or the world. And the fact that she would call them erotic topologies. I've seen photographs of her works when she started to do these pieces because she's originally from Cuba but immigrated to Puerto Rico as a result of the revolution. And, you know, these pieces were all standing in the in the in front of the sea, in the water, in, in the beach. And this relationship of these paintings with landscape was also very powerful. It's a topology, but it refers both to nature and to abstraction and to the body, to the female body. So for me, they're kind of celebration of a lot of things that normally painting wouldn't do, especially not abstract painting. But they're very, very precise, very beautifully painted. So they're, you know, I don't know, I wouldn't want to call it scholarly, but they're, they're very neat, very studied. And also the, the volumes of these works, I mean, the way she constructed the surfaces of these pieces is very difficult. I always love it when uh, a painting has a third dimension listed in its measurements so you don't just have height and and you don't just have vertical and horizontal measurements um you also have depth which is always a a, a good cue that the viewer is is in for something there's also an entire section of the show on on performance it's titled performing the body what was the audience like in latin american countries for performance work was it consistently large or small across them? Did some countries have larger audiences for performative work or are artists mostly performing for an audience of, of one or two people and are they mostly performing for a camera for which they're documenting, whether a still or video? Well, camera? there is a little bit of everything because the thing is, you know, in, in uh, Latin America and also uh, in the U.S. and I'm thinking of, you know, L.A. and the kind of underground punk scene, a lot of these kind of ad hoc action and happenings and combination between music and 
and performance and fashion show, all these things happened and many of them left no recording. There was nobody photographing these things. But they were popular in the sense that, you know, they were part of this kind of zeitgeist of the time, at least for the people that were interested in kind of more experimental culture. There has always been a public for performance. It, it didn't necessarily enter the art market or the books that soon. But for example, Brazil was huge, Argentina, even in Venezuela. I mean, I think throughout the world, performance has been a very important language from the very beginning. And the show, our exhibition, contains a lot of performance, not only on this section of performance, the body, which is called, is called that because it's an experiment, a crossover between dance, theater, music, performance, actions, and then not necessarily totally invested in other ideological problems, though they were defined anyway, things, and they were experimenting with the camera. There were a lot of, there was a lot of performance that was done just for the camera. And I remember at the beginning of working in the show, I had this kind of methodological question, what is really then a performance if you don't have an audience? Is this a video? Is this a photograph? Because you know, you know, when you establish a, a label or something, you do the technical specs, you just say that this is a photograph. You don't say what it really is which is a performance or photo performance. This methodological issue, we haven't really solved them that much. But I do feel there has always been a public for this. You know, you think of Grupo Asco in Los Angeles. You know, they were doing all these things, but they were completely rejected. That's why, they, they, you know, they, Patsy Valdez taped herself onto, onto the LACMA walls to feel that she was integrated to a museum that was completely rejecting them. So it was a powerful medium, and people saw it and appreciated it. But I feel that because it entered later into the kind of the market and the museum as collecting item, and because so much of it wasn't really recorded properly, then it, rem it remained to a certain extent a little bit marginalized. I think the last decade or so, there has been a huge amount of recovery of these histories and conceptual history of which performance is a part. In effect, there was an important theoretician in Mexico called Juan Acha, uh, Mexico, Peru, from a Peruvian, that he called it that this should not be called performance because performance was a imperialistic term, that it should be called non-objectual art. And some artists decided that that was what they're going to call it. And many artists in Latin America have different names for performance. But it is it's been a widespread form of art since, yeah, early on. Finally, two American cities, Los Angeles and San Diego, are two of the major, or were during the period of your show, two of the major centers of feminist art making in the United States. You know, Los Angeles all over the city, and in San Diego particularly at the University of California there. Did feminist practice in those two cities, did that work, or, or those artists themselves in, in, in physical personage? <laughs> travel to or through Latin America, did they have, did, did those cities have, have influence on art in the show in a way that is demonstrable? You know, I, I, I honestly don't think that there was enough exchange. The only one I know of really is Monica Meyer, because Monica Meyer studied at the Women's Building. She did, you know, she invited Susan Lacey, an artist, and they did like workshop in Mexico so there was this kind of connection, particularly between them. And and I know Chicana artists went, did work at Women's Building here in Los Angeles. But, it, you know, the participation of Latina, Latin American women wasn't as large. I mean, it, the same happened in New York, that 
uh, some women participated, you know, especially in the social movements, you know, related to feminisms, but they weren't as integrated. I think there is still quite a lot of... We had a symposium last Monday, last week, and basically uh, there was a Chicano artist that was saying that they wanted to also keep by themselves, and they were both excluded. And so the dialogues were not as fruitful. I mean, if you think now at the Brooklyn Museum, there is a radical, you know, black women exhibition. And again, you can see that there have been these very kind of large, strong groups of women that have kept kind of to themselves because of their own specific circumstances were not sufficiently reflected into the so-called white feminism. I think that we need to do more research on this aspect. You know, in our case, for example, in the section of uh, feminism, we have Barbara Carrasco. Uh, specifically in that section, we have Jocelyn Carvalho, Brazilian, who was in New York, very active with, with feminists. We have, you know, Mexican artists. Uh, Isabel Castro, though, is, she's in social places. She was also, you know, dealing with feminist issues. But it's not as widespread as one would think. Fascinating. One of the the fun things about uh, a show like this is, in addition to presenting a great deal of knowledge and research, it also lets us know what we don't know. Yeah, and I think it points us to so much that we still need to do. Because it is a lot of fine, you know, also, first of all, individual history that needs to be spelled out properly, but also understanding better issues like the one you just raised. I think, you know, the whole issue of feminism is still incredibly complex in relation to art, in relation to identity, race, and social issues, the specific ones on each kind of social group. Cecilia Fajardo-Hill, thanks so much for speaking Thank with you me. very much for inviting me to talk to you about Radical Women. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, presenting... Cindy Sherman, Imitation of Life through December 31st. Organized by The Broad in Los Angeles, this expansive survey of over 100 works makes its only appearance outside L.A. at the WEX. From Sherman's iconic untitled film stills through her most recent series of aging divas from the silent film era, Imitation of Life highlights the artist's engagement with cinema and celebrity and her career-long investigation of the influence of mass media on identity and ideas about women. The exhibition is accompanied by a star-studded audio guide featuring the voices of Miranda July, John Waters, Molly Ringwald, and more, and it closes a calendar year in which every artist featured in the Wex Galleries is a woman. For more information about the Wexner Center's programming, go to wexarts.org. Led by the Getty, Pacific Standard Time LALA is a far-reaching and ambitious exploration of Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. At the Getty Center, Related musical performances start Saturday, September 23rd at 7 p.m. with Sonorama, Latin American Composers in Hollywood, Mexican Institute of Sound with special guests Sergio Mendoza and a band led by L.A.'s own Alberto Lopez play tribute to Lalo Schifarin, Maria Griebert, and other artists in the museum courtyard. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances at getty.edu 360. The most exciting exhibition of the fall season is at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Items is Fashion Modern, explores 111 garments and accessories, from door knocker earrings and the little black dress to the bucket hat and the white t-shirt that have had a profound impact on the world over the last century. It's in member previews right now. Join today and see it first. Get more info at moma.org and plan your visit today.
Welcome back. My next guest is MFA Boston curator Frederick Ilchman. He's one of the three co-curators of Casanova, The Seduction of Europe, a broad look at the -the over-the-top luxury of European art and decorative arts in the pre-French Revolution 18th century. It's on view at the Kimball Art Museum through December 31st. The exhibition is built around the famed Giacomo Casanova, a courtier, Lothario, and schemester, whose memoir provides one of the best insights to an era in which those at the top of society milked their countries for wealth and prestige, leaving little for others. The exhibition was co-curated by Ilchman, the National Gallery's C.D. Dickerson, who started work on the show while he was at the Kimball, and the Clark's Esther Bell. The exhibition catalog, which is published by the MFA Boston, is one of the flat-out best art books of the year. Don't miss it. You'll read it like a novel with pictures. Amazon lists it for $38. Frederick Ilchman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be here. So as we talk about Giacomo Casanova, I think we should start by laying out the international Europe, internationalist Europe of his time, a Europe that included to varying degrees, given that they fought a couple of wars against each other, the Ottoman Empire and Catherine the Great's Russia. As we begin to talk about Casanova and and his time, what should we know about his Europe? Well, for a start, this is the Ancien Regime. This is before the French Revolution. Casanova's life, uh, his life dates are 1725 to 1798, and virtually everything in the exhibition was made during his lifetime. But we're really focusing on the sort of sweet spot would be the mid 1700s, so mid 18th century, 1730s, 40s, 50s, early 60s. That's when he was most active, traveling, getting into all sorts of scrapes, making lots of money, losing it, that sort of thing. France was still a monarchy. Prussia was a monarchy. Russia was a monarchy. Italy was a series of smaller states, yet not unified. That doesn't happen for another century to the 1860s. And this kind of government based on courts where you had an important person surrounded by uh, sort of officials and flatterers and entourage and hangers-on and relatives, that was a primary source of income and jobs. And a lot of Casanova's travels are in fact prompted by looking for work. You know, he wanted a cushy appointment. He wanted to work for some top person. He tries to get to know the king and queen of England, George III. He gets, goes to Frederick the Great's Prussia, goes to Catherine the Great's Russia, looking for some sort of appointment, you know, to run a school, to supply industrial secrets, uh, to reform the calendar, to do a national lottery. He makes a pile of money in France, really developing the first national lottery in France and in the, in the 1750s. And we need to keep that in mind that he was living in a, in a culture that celebrated elitism, you know, being at the top. He's, but And that's why it's fascinating because he came from such a low birth himself. Casanova, probably illegitimate son, child of, of an actress and maybe a Venetian nobleman, nobleman uh, grew up in a poor street in a corner of Venice, was able to ingratiate himself through quick thinking and, frankly, lucky timing uh, to keep rising up the ladder. When things got difficult, he'd go on the move. When he was running out of money in Paris, he'd escape to London, leaving his creditors behind. Yeah, he's, he traveled over the course of his life, I think, 40,000 miles across Europe and England, right? It's an extraordinary number of miles. He's often on the go. He lives more in Venice than in any other place, but Paris was really a second home. And uh, there is a kind of escapism and novelty of the new and 
Uh, he loved eating and dining well and lavishly. These are things that we can understand right now. I mean, it's our culture of foodies and posting your vacation photos and you know inventing a persona and moving through life in a grand way. These are things that we tend to admire now in the 21st century that Casanova was among the first to really cultivate in a big way and certainly among the first to write it all down. And that's a key thing about this exhibition. He's not the only person that led a scandalous or amusing or daring life in the 18th century, not by any means, but he wrote one of the world's longest autobiographies. And that's a real source text for all aspects of 18th century studies, uh, but also the really inspiring text for our exhibition to recreate Casanova's visual and cultural world. And so because this is the rare museum exhibition built around a non-artist, I think what you're saying is that the combination of his, his travels and experiences and that text you just mentioned make him a great figure to hang uh, a story, a visual story of the period on. Exactly. And he, uh, the important thing is this is not a biographical show per se, in, even though the exhibition uses the chronology of Casanova's life and the geography, the places he visits, as significant signposts or areas to pull out a theme. But it's not full of memorabilia. You know, it, you know the guy was always on the move. His library was broken up. His... Uh, he really lives on in the memory of of the people who knew him. But it's it, so, so it's it's not like oh this is his walking stick and this is his eyeglasses and you know this is a painting he had on the wall. No, it's really about the sumptuous and fascinating interiors. That's one thing we put a lot of effort into is recreating some of these interiors in a general sense. Combinations of painting and pastel, sculpture, decorative arts, furniture, and doing these in these uh, ensembles that were the intentions in the Rococo period in the middle of the uh, 18th century there was a greater than the sum of its parts mentality and this kind of art we think doesn't impress people today in part because things are seen in isolation and to create these vignettes uh, gives her a lot more restores a lot of the initial uh, original power of these works and then we take it up a notch by also including three different groups of costume figures and this is something I'm terribly excited about this is not costume per se, like woman's dress, man's suit, you know, old shoes, buckles, etc. But it's these are mannequins acting out a scene inspired vaguely by Casanova's lifetime. And uh, these really bring you into the sense of interiors because in many ways the greatest furniture are well-dressed guests, right, who glide through your spaces. Casanova was very attentive to the, the propaganda value of having a well-cut suit, that sort of thing. And so within the exhibition, in our three venues, we're, we will, uh, we're demonstrating the visit to a convent in Venice. This is the kind of visiting hours where a girl who'd been parked in a convent uh, by her parents against her will before she gets married. She has a gentleman caller there. Another visit is the scene that takes place in France where we have the levee, which is you know the morning toilette which is a sort of semi-social event where a woman would get dressed and put on makeup and read, write letters, drink coffee, and chat with visitors. And then, and that's a, a beautiful costumes in that. And these are, again, these are mannequins acting out something. Uh, they're not just standing there stiffly in a call, kind of Hall of the Presidents aspect. And the third one is a drunken card party uh, in Hogarthy in London where um, one card players accuse the other one other one of uh, cheating at cards, and he will literally have a card up its sleeve, the cheater that is. In the, in the preface to the catalog, you and your co-curators write that the art of the time can best be understood as part of a total visual environment. And I think you just, just described a few, and maybe 
could you draw a connection between these tableaus that you've created and what we see in paintings by artists such as Pietro Longhi? The conception of the 18th century is a, is a unified work of art and the sinuous lines, the expensive materials, the, the sense of breaking corners, juxtapositions of textures, all these things you need to have combinations of, of works together. They play off each other. It's, a, it's an overall aesthetic. It is interesting, though, that paintings of interiors tend not to focus on these kind of details. A lot of things were small scale. We're going to have beautiful snuff boxes and terrines for dining, and we have gorgeous you know, shaving sets and perfume and toilette service. And there's so much there, but a lot of it's small scale. And a painting by an artist like Longhi, the Venetian 18th century painter, he's very good on human nature and the uncomfortable aspects of social situations, whether it be a music lesson or a friar who comes to hear confessions, but is basically using the excuse to stare down the décolletage of one of the women in, in the painting. And there's a lot of social commentary there. And he gives us, Longhi gives us some sense of these big windowless interiors in a Venetian palazzo, the, in, the smaller rooms being covered with beautiful fabrics, but not a lot of sense of the furniture itself. And even if he does, the chairs and tables, you don't realize that some of the most beautiful aspects of an interior will be quite small things, candelabra, snuff boxes, uh, the articles of the table. But the, the, the thing we want to make clear is that even though this is an exhibition of a whole series of big name artists, like the painters Fragonard and Boucher and Canaletto and Tiepolo and Longhi and Natier or Reynolds or the printmaker Piranese, that the decorative arts are on the same level as the paintings. This is an exhibition that's going to have world-class furniture, silver, porcelain, etc., jewelry, and these are absolute masterpieces. And so, and that's part of our part of our hope is that someone who might not be wary of an exhibition of masterpieces of mid 18th century art will indeed be intrigued by the idea of Casanova and the seduction of Europe. Yeah, one of the things I got about reading the catalog is that paintings by by somebody like Longhi might give us people and their interplay in the physical objects that are otherwise in the exhibition, because obviously you can't have people in fabulous 18th century dress sitting in 18th century chairs in a 21st century museum. But the, but the paintings like Longhi's might give us an idea of, you know, an exaggerated idea perhaps, but an idea of how Casanova's courtier-focused world functioned. So to the extent Casanova did do anything that was visually engaging, I guess he did a little bit of what we would now call interior decorating? Yes, it, particularly when he was in, in, in France. He was trying to run a fabric business and also knew that you needed to impress. I mean, when he was a sort of boy and was allowed to go up the staircase to the Piano Nobile of a major Venetian palazzo, like the Malapiero or the Bragadine Palazzo, you realize just from the level of detail and an overall sumptuousness that this is how you impressed people. Your power and influence is directly related to the big show that you put on with your interiors, with your costume, uh, with your events. So he did this himself. He spent he had a lot of money in Paris, but then spent it all, escaped his creditors. His business of, of 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 painted silks went bust. But the idea is that beautiful textures also add. You know, it's another kind of opulence, and this is something that you cannot get from a photograph. Uh, to see real cloth, real costumes from the 18th century is just quite extraordinary. You know, he was primarily a literary figure. He considered himself a major writer. 
might, that's kind of putting it generously, but Casanova corresponded with all sorts of literary figures, right? He was particularly people like uh, Voltaire and Rousseau, but he also was known for reciting poems and making up witty verse uh, in several languages. He loved literary gatherings. So he was not really a patron of the arts per se, though he certainly would have owned smaller pictures, portrait miniatures, snuff boxes. Some of these would have been sentimental gifts, some romantic gifts. But he was very much on the go, and that makes it hard to, to you, know, you know, there is no real Casanova house. He stayed in various places, but uh, uh, he was more tied to his wish to experience the world, the wish to fall in love again and again, the wish to be taken seriously as a thinker. Those sort of things motivated him more than uh, actually devising, you know, the beautiful house or palazzo that so many art patrons over the generations have done. The, the key thing in this, though, is that when he starts writing his memoirs towards the end of his life, he doesn't even get to the end of, of his life. But it's so detailed. Uh, that really is a masterpiece. And we've seen this thorough mind, this person who's very sensitive, a great judge of human character, incredibly witty, as a kind of ideal visitor. He's the kind of perfect viewer in the 18th century. And the kind of person, if you were a politician or any kind of ruling family. The kind of person you really wanted to impress was the sophisticated cosmopolitan outsider, someone like Casanova. So we've used that as a, as a kind of cue as well. You know, thinking about and reading about this period of European history, which for a certain class of people was, was somewhat borderless and extravagant and opulent and a very what we would now call a 1% oriented society. When you and your co-conspirators started talking about this show five or seven or eight years ago, were you consciously trying to make a show or engage ideas that seemed au in today's America or indeed in today's Western world? Well, I mean, I think 1% is not even strong enough. I mean, Casano was fascinating. He, he pretended to be an aristocrat. He traveled under various assumed names. He had, he stylized or styled himself as a as a nobleman, wasn't at all. Um, then was once in a while called out for that. It was, it's quite interesting, kind of, you know, kind of a internet shaming, you know, exposed that sort of thing. You know, we we make quite clear at the beginning that we're not endorsing his way of life. I mean, he was a he was a you know a cheat, a scoundrel, pretty frequently, sometimes treated women terribly. You know, that he figured a way from time to time to game the system and actually get very do quite well and move in high circles. Don't begrudge him that per se. You know, it's it's the sort of thing when you go to Versailles and you look around, you say, "Wow, now I see why there was a French Revolution, right?" And, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and there's a there's a there's a bit of that in this. You know, it's 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 not for nothing that in the 1780s you have big movements for political reform that culminate in the storming of the Bastille and the uh, capture and execution of the French king. That happens at the same time as this ideal of neoclassical art. Ancient Greek and Roman styles come to the fore, and the sense is, you know, that that this was a nobler, more literary and intellectual time, and there's a kind of timelessness about it. And of course, then that goes out the window, celebrating Greek democracy, when you have Napoleon declaring himself emperor and styling himself as an ancient Roman emperor. But, but, but you know, that, that's all. I mean, Casanova doesn't die till 1798, so he would have known all this news that would have horrified him. You know, the collapse of these of the, the French monarchy and the and the th threats to peace. But by then, he was really living in the past. I mean, and we made very clear, as we were selecting objects for the exhibition, even though that we had the rules, everything from his lifetime, 
that is from 1725 to 1798. By the time you get to the 1780s, it just seems like a different world. And, uh, and that was a, it was clear. We just assemble bulletin boards and piles of photographs and look at things that we were contemplating for the exhibition. And by that time, they just seemed, seemed too different. They didn't seem, although they were part of his lifetime, they didn't seem in the same way part of his world. The book, the catalog that accompanies this show is just absolutely one of the best such things I've seen in recent years and read in recent years. It's it's really terrific. Did you and 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 your co-conspirators think of this book or catalog differently than a normal museum kind of scholarly catalog? Yes, we definitely thought of this as different from the standard exhibition catalog. Part of it was the material is heterogeneous. I mean, we're really literally all over the map, right? There are things from all parts of parts of Europe, many different media, and the standard formula of a page of text on the left for a single work of art that's reproduced on the right of an opening just wouldn't work. I mean, we have hundreds of pieces in the show, really. It's it's quite uh, quite extraordinary just how many how many things are, are are in this exhibition. A lot of them small format. You don't need to have, you know, every chair or snuff box or, or, or print be illustrated and described. The main thing was to make it a book that was a book, not, not as a catalog. And you even notice the format of the book. I mean, if you see it thick but not particularly large otherwise, it feels like it could be a really good novel. And that was the idea. His life is a great read. His own autobiography, his memoirs is an amazing read, though super long and beyond uh, most people's uh, capacity. You know, uh, if if you can do one of the ten volumes, you've done pretty well. But but the, the the idea was then to use linked topics, and we alternate between a theme and then a place. And what is interesting is how easily Casanova flows into these different topics: the hazards and practicalities of travel in the 18th century, or what do images of art, particularly French art, those frothy paintings by Fragonard and Boucher. What do they say about attitudes towards romance, sex, heartbreak in the uh, 18th century? A beautiful chapter on clothing, uh, how getting dressed and undressed, and distinctions that we find very hard to understand now, but were fundamental to the social structure back then. Dining, whole section on Casanova in Eastern Europe, which is fascinating, that a man from Venice who called himself really uh, honorary Frenchman ended up in uh, rural Bohemia uh, in a uh, small little principality, a little castle north of Prague. You know, fascinating way to come down in the world at the end. But the point was, these work well as essays, not as exhibition catalog entries. So the point was to weave in discussion of the individual objects in, into each one of these texts. So if you go in the footnotes, you'll find information about when it was made or bibliography or questions about its it's iconography or interpretation, but it's not a work-by-work work exploration. Rather, it's about these big themes about the Paris of Casanova or Casanova is a man of letters. And these the illustrations are both guiding the discussion and illustrating it. Yeah, there's a whole chapter on champagne and oysters. I mean, it's just an enormously fun book. Finally, I got to think that anyone who builds a show around Casanova has a favorite story about him, be it from his memoirs or from somewhere else. And so I'm guessing you do, and I'm hoping you'll tell it. Casanova, in a low period of his life, is treating people really badly. He is pushing too many boundaries, and it's the sort of spring into summer of 1755. He is hanging out with low-life types. He's playing pranks. We know this because there is a spy that the 
Venetian state, uh, that, which is really a police state, the Venetian government wants people to observe social norms and not get into trouble. And the spy trails him. And it says that, that he has been indulging in alchemy. Casanova has also been spending time with Freemasons. He is frequenting the homes of married and unmarried women and, quote, women of another sort, which means prostitutes. But the big thing that Casanova did to get in trouble was not that he was making, ripping off foreigners at the gambling table or that he was running around too much with women was actually his heretical comments. He apparently wrote a loud, uh, read, read aloud at a tavern, long poem in Venetian dialect mocking Christianity and Christians. And this was a poem of his own composition, and he was getting lots of laughs, and Venetian authorities thought this was just too much. And on the morning of July 26th, he was woken up in his, in his house in Venice by a whole group of magistrates, and they arrested him. It didn't help that Casanova's library had all sorts of books of free-thinking ideas and wide range of, of interests that were seen as suspicious as well. So he was rowed to the, the new prison, which is right in Venice next to the Plaza Ducale, uh, off St. Mark's Square, he crossed by foot the Bridge of Sighs and then was put into the Plaza Ducale. And this was for a man who loved freedom and travel and expressing himself and skirting the law. This was too much to be utterly captured, no sign of when he would be released. And so then Casanova makes it his mission to force all his mental powers onto getting out of there. And this is a wonderful story that unfolds over a number of months but the great thing he does is on one of the sort of recesses where he could walk along under the roof of the Palazzo Ducale, the enormous roof, and get a little exercise break, he finds an iron spike. It's basically, you know, like a giant nail. And he's able to uh, bring, secretes that in his costume, in his clothing, and brings it back to his cell. He's able to sharpen it into a spike. And then through a whole lot of crazy stories by sending letters and kind of codes to his various neighbors, uh, people of, in other figures imprisoned for political reasons in the same set of cells, they're able to break out. They clamber up onto the roof of the Palazzo Ducale and nearly lose everything. They're able to let themselves down in through a sequence of rooms. And then finally, on November 1st, 1756, they're able to uh, get almost down to the ground level. And then suddenly they go by, they find a door they can't break through. They lean out uh, the window and having, you know, brought with them their clothes when they'd first been imprisoned. And a guard downstairs sees a man in a fancy hat with a plume on it and assumes, oh dear, this is a Venetian nobleman who, you know, kind of fell asleep and got locked in there overnight. And so the guard of the Palazzo Ducale opens it and Casanova can escape to freedom. And it is a final thing. It's wonderful. He calls for a gondola and announces very loudly where he wants to be rowed to. And then as soon as he's out of earshot, he tells the gondolier, instead, go for a different place on the Venetian mainland to drop me off. And so that's a, it's a wonderful story with, with all sorts of fun episodes, including delivering the spike from one cell to another. He hides it, was going to hide it in a big Bible. He gets his jailer to buy for him a Bible. The Bible is large, but not big enough to hide the spike. So, so what he does is he asks his jailer, he wants to make a big bowl of macaroni. It's some kind of pasta. Maybe it's a, it's gnocchi or something, but coat it with cheese and butter, a giant thing. And to, to put the, the, this big bowl, which is going to go to another prisoner as a kind of gift to use the book as a tray, which of course means the jailer can't poke around and see if there's a spike inside because he's too busy not dropping the pasta. 
Anyway, so lots of stories that are humorous, and Casanova's retelling of this story made him a hero, really, in France, and outside of Venice, of course. It causes his exile from Venice. He can't go back for uh, 20 years. But then the book he writes about his escape from the prisons of Venice is a wonderful set piece and becomes a key part of the much longer autobiography he writes towards the end of his life. Absolutely fantastic. Frederick Ilchman, thanks so much for speaking with me. It's been a pleasure. Please come visit Casanova. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.